Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. So this morning, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series on children's songs that come from the Gospel of Mark. You know, last week, we looked at, oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. And today, we're going to be looking at that beloved classic, This Little Light of Mine. All right? Am I being influenced? Are my thoughts being affected by the age of my children? Probably, yes. Am I stretching a little bit for a way to intro both sermons? Series, both sermons? Possibly. But did I find a corny yet very effective way to show you that, that these two messages are intimately tied together and go together? Absolutely. Right? I scored. Corny yet oh so effective. Now, Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25, is a continuation of Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower. All right, last week we saw that Jesus is the sower. Then he is sowing the word of God impartially on four types of soil. He's sowing it on the path, he's sowing it on the rocky ground, he's sowing it among thorns, and he's sowing it on the good soil. And in it, Jesus is exhorting us to listen carefully to the word. We need to listen carefully to the word and prepare the soil of our hearts so that we would not be unfruitful as Satan attempts to take away the word of God from us through our own inattentiveness or through our own ill will. We despise God's word or through our own ignorance of God's word. We just don't know what it means. We don't know what it says. We're just completely ignorant to its meaning. That that rocky ground, if you remember, is that you receive the word with joy, but when tribulation and persecution comes, you end up falling away. You end up turning away from the word. And Jesus there exhorting us to, to be careful to count the cost of discipleship because there will be hardship. There will be trial. It's not health, wealth, and blessing for Christians. That's not the way it's intended to be. And then that third soil, the among the thorns, Jesus warns us, he admonishes us to not be caught up in the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the, the, everything that surrounds the thorns that come in and choke out the word and prove it to be un, unfruitful in our lives. He encourages us to be that good soil, that soil that, that when the seed lands on it, It produces a hundredfold and sixtyfold and thirtyfold. This amazing, glorious, bountiful harvest, right? That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be. So we need to be careful that we are the good soil and not the bad. And this week, Jesus gives further explanation as to what it means to bear fruit. That we are to sow the seed. That we are to sow the word of God like Jesus does. We are to take our our lights, and let it shine, if you will. So that's what it means to follow Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so corny as it may be, yes, we are to take this little light, and we are to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 25, and that's page 839 in the Bibles there in the chair. And Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. 
For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The main point of this passage is that the light is meant to shine brighter and brighter or it will be taken away. It's the whole entire point of this. And so this morning, as we explore this text, we're basically going to be unpacking that main point into three parts. So let's first look at the lamp. We need to identify the lamp. In verse 21, it begins with, And Jesus said to them, but to identify who them is, we've got to look all the way back to verse 10. In verse 10 it says, And when Jesus was alone, when he was away from the crowd, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. These folks are also connected in verse 11 and 13. He's speaking to the twelve and to those who are with him, those who are following Jesus, those who are alone with Jesus, those who are seeking understanding through Jesus. This is not the crowd. These are those who are following him, those who are with Jesus. And he continues in explaining this parable, this parable of the sower from from verses 1 through 9, by asking a rhetorical question. He asks, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not to be set up on a stand? Now, the Greek here is actually really difficult. And it's led a lot of translators, like the one in probably the Bibles that you're reading right now, to just kind of side with Matthew and Luke. Because the Greek is a lot easier in Matthew and Luke on this. And it treats the lamp as either a passive subject, right? Is the lamp brought in? The lamp doesn't actually do anything, it's brought in. Or it treats it as the object. Do you bring the lamp in, right? It, It treats it as just kind of like there, just kind of inactive in whatever it's doing, whether it's the subject or the object of the verb. But actually, the Greek here in Mark, Mark is being very specific, very intentional, and this is an active subject. He wants us to know that this this lamp is doing something, right? And he does it for very significant reasons. A better translation is, does the lamp come so that it would be placed under a basket or a bed and not to be set on a lampstand? Do you hear the difference there? It's a real significant difference. He, Mark, in Mark, Jesus asked, does the lamp come? Not a lamp. Does the lamp come? Even that has significant meaning. In order to be put under this basket or this bed and not set, not placed up, not exalted upon a lampstand, even though it's a very difficult rendering, it has very, very significant meaning. In the Old Testament, the lamp is frequently referred to as a metaphor for three things. First is God. God is the lamp. Another example is the Messiah, the promised one, this Davidic king, this king from the line of David. And the third metaphor that the Old Testament uses for the lamp is is the word of God. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, right? We see this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. It happens numerous times that the lamp refers to either God, this Davidic Messiah, this king, or the word of God. And here, Jesus, in asking, does the lamp come? He's connecting himself to all three. In addition... Throughout this gospel, um, Mark repeatedly refers to Jesus as the coming one. 
It happens over and over and over again. We've already seen it numerous times. For example, um, in chapter 1, verse 7, John the Baptist says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. In chapter 1, verse 14, after John was arrested, Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. Or chapter 2, verse 17, when Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mark makes the lamp a definite subject because Jesus is telling that He is the lamp that has come. He is God. He is that Davidic Messiah. He is the Word made flesh. I mean, once again, Mark is telling us about who Jesus is so that we can know Him, so that we can understand that He has all authority as the Son of God. That He is the promised King that the people had been waiting for all this time. That He is the Word made flesh, the incarnate Word who perfectly obeys and fulfills the Word, who speaks the very Word of God, and in fact is the very Word of God. He's asking, did I come to be hidden? Did I come to be stifled? Did I come so that you can stuff me? To put me under some basket or some bed and not exalt me up on a stand. That's what Jesus is asking here. That's a far different rendering than thinking, I have a little light and I'm going to let it shine, is it? Right? Jesus is the lamp. And He's exalted. He's to be exalted. He is to be held up. He says that I came in order to be seen. I came in order to reveal who I am. I came that you might know God, that you might know that I am God's appointed king, so that you might know that I am the fulfillment of God's word. And that you need to go and do something about it. He's asking here, did I come to be hidden? And the obvious answer is no. He came to be exalted. In verse 22, Jesus says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now, God is a personal God. God is a God who reveals Himself. And God is a God who wants to be known. Right? This is not some deistic, transcendental, like, completely unrelated to us God who's just kind of way up there in the distance and never here, never present with us. It's a God who's constantly reaching out, speaking to our hearts through His Spirit, through His Word, so that we might know Him, so that we might understand Him, so that we might worship Him in all His glory for who He is. But how is this perfect, incomprehensible God to be understood by finite beings like us. Finite beings who have to learn. Finite beings that that cannot and never will have perfect knowledge. Well, he does it by revealing himself. This is significant. He, He does it by revealing himself to us. Rather than laying all the cards out on the table, right? You think that God in creating a world could have 
could have laid all the cards out. Jesus could have been there with Adam and Eve and said, hey, you know what? I'm the Savior that's going to take away your sin. Boom, there it's done. Let's live happily ever after, right? But he didn't do that, did he? He had purpose behind not laying it all out there, but by revealing himself to us over time so that it, as, his, as his hidden truth that's not meant to exclude, not meant to keep away. His secret knowledge is, is sort of revealed over time in his perfect timing. We might come to an, to an ultimate glorious understanding of who he is and we worship him all the more. Because in his timing, he made himself known through his son. I mean, this is why the king comes as this poor carpenter's son from Nazareth. I mean, talk about secret, hidden, just normal, everyday kind of existence, but ends up being the most glorious thing ever. I mean, who could understand this apart from God's revealing this to us? This is an amazing thing and something that that we ought to praise and honor God for. Thanks. She's looking out for me. You know, we naturally think that we're really intuitive beings, right? We do. Who here actually doesn't think you're very intuitive? Anybody? Grace raised her hand. There's the most intuitive person in the room right there. The reality is we're far less perceptive, far less insightful, far less discerning than we think we are. Right? And the more we think that we're intuitive, the more we think we're discerning, the less we are. And the less we wonder at the marvelous truth that exists all around us. Here's a few examples. How many of us understand how gravity works? Anybody? Or, or what about this? How does life begin? Does it, can anyone explain that? Really how? Or why? What about the involuntary functions of your body, right? How is it that my heart beats, that my lungs go in and out and and blood flows through my body and this whole thing works together to sustain my life? I don't know. How can I know anything, right? Where does knowledge come from and how can we know it? All these things are, are things that we take for granted every day. Us very intuitive beings that ought to know this stuff or think that we're intuitive aren't really very intuitive all, at all. We, we, we take this stuff for granted all the time. We just live without thinking, without really pondering, without seeing the glory in it, without seeking that knowledge. But here's the thing, guys. When you slow down and you begin to ponder this stuff, well, when has it not been mind-boggling? When has it not floored you? I mean, think about gravity, right? Gravity, uh, you know, hey, I'm glad that I'm not floating away or I'm not a slug, like, just crawling along the ground because gravity is too thick. But, but God has designed the world, in, you know, the earth in such a way that it's the perfect size rotating perfectly on its axis as it orbits around this big ball of burning gas that's some 93 million miles away, and that's able to keep me from floating into outer space or from being slammed to the ground so that I can't even move. I mean, this is amazing. Or or life. I mean, how is it that God can design for one human man cell to find its way to a human female cell, and that those things can somehow unite together and be put together in a perfect condition so that a soul is created. 
Not just life, not some sentient being, not a plant, but a soul with feelings, with emotions, with thoughts that can react and respond. I mean, this is amazing stuff. How does this happen? Think about it. Think about your your body. I do not cause my heart to beat. I do not physically take oxygen out of the air and stick it in my individual cells. But every moment of every day, that's exactly what happens over and over and over again, and I do nothing about it. Guys, when we think about this stuff, when we ponder this stuff, we can never fully explain or express the hows or the whys, but all we know is this amazing. This is amazing stuff. And this happens for a very real and significant reason. I mean, this is hidden wisdom. This is secret truth, but this is not even the greatest truth that we can hear and that we can see and that we can understand. And it causes us to awe. It causes us to wonder. I mean, think about Adam and Eve, Right? Adam and Eve were created by God to walk with him in intimate fellowship of the, in the garden. I mean, we, this is fascinating stuff. I, I wonder what it would be like to be Adam and be like, hey, God, what's up? Nice to hang with you today. Like, you know, you're, you're there. You've got this perfect relationship with him. But you know what? They took it for granted. They couldn't understand how great it is. How wonderful what they had was. They couldn't really understand. The, they knew that there was a difference between them and God, but they didn't understand how real, how significant, how great this different wa- difference was. They just took it for granted. They hadn't learned it yet. They just assumed upon their relationship. They assumed because they could relate to God, and he walked with them in the garden, that this was some tangible thing that I can attain to. And so when Satan comes along, and he says, there's the tree of the knowledge of the fruit, uh, the, the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of that, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. They're thinking, sweet, I can do that. And then I won't need God. Then I won't have to live as a subject to God. I can do what I want. I can be like God. They didn't recognize how different they were from God. But you know what? As soon as they ate of that fruit, their eyes were open. And they were exposed. And they lived in fear. And they hid themselves from God and from one another. They recognized that there was that expanse between them and God was so much greater than they could ever anticipate. And that they rightly deserved the just wrath of God. They caught that. And that happened because that that truth was hidden from them, then revealed. In a very unfortunate way, but yet nevertheless, it was. Last week we talked about how God's glory is ultimately revealed in salvation that comes through judgment. Okay? We can't really understand God's glory by ourselves. Adam and Eve proved that. And we can't really understand God's glory through salvation if God just saved everybody. You have this idea of God being love and this sort of being this universal application of God's love just doesn't work if judgment is not real because we miss so much of who God is. There's so much of God that we don't understand, that we can't really see, that we can't really comprehend. We have to see God's glory in salvation through judgment. And we talked about this. I'm like, God's grace is misunderstood if there's not real judgment. God's mercy 
God's love is not understood apart from true judgment. Nor is his justice, nor is his holiness, nor is his righteousness, nor is his wrath. So much of God cannot be understood by us finite, supposedly intuitive beings if we don't get that. That's all truth that's been hidden, that is revealed. God's glory being revealed in salvation through judgment. Without God's perfect just judgment for our rebellion against him, his grace is not amazing. We, like Adam and Eve, don't see ourselves for the truly flawed, finite beings that we are. Apart from judgment. Apart from God's wrath. And so, God has hidden his perfect plan of salvation. Not to exclude, but but to reveal in salvation through judgment. Like to, so he might reveal how glorious he is in Christ. The only hope we have to be saved from our sin is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. This, led, this is what led the Apostle Peter to say, and if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time in exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then he says this, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, through who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. He's saying here, this was God's plan A all along. But it was kept hidden for long ages to be revealed in God's perfect timing so that you might see the truth and beauty and ultimate worth of this unblemished sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. You don't get that intuitively. Apart from God's secret, hidden truth being revealed, you don't get that. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ was hidden in order to be revealed so that we might give God glory. So that our faith, that our hope, that our trust, that our everything, that our lives are in God through Jesus Christ. The true glory of God revealed in salvation through Christ that comes through judgment. Jesus the lamp has come to proclaim and to reveal that very thing. So friends, do not take this truth for granted. Don't take it for granted. Don't just assume that you're in. Make your calling and election sure. And you do that by seeking Christ with all your heart. So that's the lamp. Second, that lamp is meant to shine. Now this truism ought to be intuitive even for those of us who aren't very intuitive, right? A seed is meant to be sown. A lamp is meant to shine. It's pretty obvious, right? If you you hoard away a seed, you know, you put it down in your pocket, the thing rots. It's no good. 
can't really eat it, doesn't survive too long. You, you're meant to sow it, right? And the lamp is not meant to be put under a, a, a basket or a bed. It's meant to be put up on a lampstand. I mean, you don't have to be the sharpest knife in that thing where they put the knives in order for you to get that. Again, that's another kid reference. I'm not going to tell you where it came from. But uh, anyway, Jesus said, I didn't come to be put under a basket or a bed. I came to be put up on a stand so that my light would be seen by all. He says in verse 23, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, this is repeated from the parable of the sowers. Back up in verse 9. If God has given you ears to hear this, and to understand my meaning, you have a responsibility to do something about it. Those who have been given ears to hear, those who have the lamp, are to hear, heed Jesus' words. The lamp is meant to shine. You don't put it under a basket or a bed. If you do either, if you do either one of those things, put it under a basket or a bed, the lamp is either going to go out or it's going to catch fire. Neither of which is the intended purpose of the lamp, right? Which is meant to give off light. You might be saying, well, fire gives off plenty of light. But yeah, it also burns stuff up, including you. It doesn't work. The word is sown on the good soil so that it would bear fruit. We saw that last week, right? The lamp comes so that it would be put upon a stand to receive it so that we can share it and not hide it away to or for ourselves. Right? It's not just meant for us. Do you, do you realize that, that Jesus is not just for you? Would you get that? Do you understand that you are not the end of Christ's saving purposes? That you are not the end of Christ's salvation? Now, intuitively, we would answer, no, of course not. Of course I'm not the end of, of Jesus' saving purposes. Of course I'm not the end of his salvation. Of course Jesus died for more than just me. But if we looked at your calendar... And we looked at your checkbook. And we looked at the way that you spent your life. Would your life argue for the same thing? It's easy for us to say that, to speak intuitively about that. It's another thing to live that way. And so often we don't. We treat Jesus as if he's somehow our own personal Jesus, right? He's our own personal Savior, that he saved me in my sin so that I might ultimately fulfill my own purposes, so that I can live for myself and not for him who died for me. We even sing blasphemous songs that exalt ourselves, like, you took the fall and thought of me above all. You should talk to Jim about that song. (laughs) But guess what? It ain't about you. Right? It's not about you. It's about Him. Jesus didn't die simply so that you could receive the benefit of salvation so that you could just simply be converted. Like, I could just jump over that, that lowest, that lowest hurdle there. I can climb that lowest rung and be just good enough to get in. That's not the point. He died so that He might redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 2.14 Your conversion, your initial faith, is not the end. It's only the beginning of Christ's saving purposes. You were saved for a purpose. 
Let's look at how Mark has described discipleship so far. Let's see what it means to ultimately be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. I mean, first, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus proclaims that we must repent of our sin and believe in the gospel. All right? We get this. Often this is all the farther we take it. But we need to keep going. In in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, Jesus calls his disciples. He says, come and follow me. Immediately, they leave everything that they find their identity in, and he calls them to become what? Fishers of men. He calls them to be fishers of men. In chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, we're given the example of of Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick with a fever. Jesus comes in and heals her. And what does she immediately get up and do? She immediately gets up and she starts serving him. Just a few verses later, Jesus goes and he heals a leper. And that leper takes off and he starts proclaiming what has happened to everybody, so much so that Jesus can't even enter the towns anymore. I mean, even the paralytic man was told to rise, take up your mat, and go home. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, Levi is called. This man that is hated and he's despised and he's told to get up from your tax booth and follow me along with all these guys that hate you. In chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, the 12 apostles are selected in order that they might be with Christ and that they might do what Christ is doing which is to preach the gospel and to have authority to cast out demons, to do the very thing that, they're, that he's doing. In, verse three, in chapter 3, verse 35, Jesus says to his family and to those who are with him that his true mother, his true brothers, his true sisters are those that do the will of God and not their own. And last week we saw that those who listen, that those who have ears to hear, that those who seek, that those who ask, that those who who are truly with Jesus will bear fruit. And they do that by sowing the word as Christ does. And here we see that those who have the lamp, those that recognize that Jesus has all the authority of God, that Jesus has all the authority of God's anointed and appointed king, that he has all the authority of God's word, are called not to hide it away, but to hold it up, to lift it up, to exalt it, to place it up on a stand so that it can be seen and adored and worshipped so that people will recognize who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. I mean, this is the point. You've received this lamp, now do something with it. Let it shine. Those who have ears will hear. And if we, as the good soil, have truly received the seed, if we have truly received that coming lamp, then we will, like that good soil, bear fruit a hundredfold and sixtyfold and thirtyfold. We will lift up that lamp. We will let it shine. And in so doing, the gospel reveals the true nature of our hearts. He reveals whether or not we are that good seed or or whether we are the bad. Because the good seed bears fruit. And those that have the lamp will put it up on a lampstand so that it will illuminate the entire room. The lamp is meant to shine. But third, this lamp... This light of Christ is meant to shine brighter and brighter, or it will be taken away. 
In verses 24 and 25, Jesus warns that there are blessings and curses associated with how we handle the truth that we have received. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For the, for the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He says here, pay attention to what you hear. Listen carefully to the word. You have, are responsible for the truth that you hear. If you have the seed, you are to throw it. You are to sow it. If you have the light, you are to let it shine. So pay attention to what you hear. You are responsible for reproducing it. You know, here in America, we have this tendency to just hoard things away. You know, that's what we want to do. We want to keep things for ourselves. We're, we're selfish beings. We want, to, we want to take it and keep it and store it away for ourselves. And we do this even with biblical knowledge. We go to church or we study or we collect books and we learn in seminaries and in Bible classes, not so that we would be more equipped to share that truth with others, but so that we can boast in our knowledge. We can boast in ourselves. Well, that's just a farce. It doesn't work. If you don't share what you proclaim to know, you prove that you don't really know it. Because there's an imperative in every line of Scripture. We have to do something with it. It's inherent in the Word that it is not to be stored up for ourselves, but it is meant to be shared. You know, we're a lot like a sponge. When you use a sponge, you take it, you, you saturate it in the water until it can't hold no more water. And then you take that sponge and you use it to disperse that water to clean stuff, right? You do it on your dishes, you do it on your counter, you do it on your car, whatever it might be. And as that water is dispersed and it dries out, then what happens? You go and you take more, you saturate more water, and you go and do the same thing. That's what's meant to happen with the sponge. In order for it to collect water continually and effectively, it has to be used. It has to disperse that water that it has received. Well, let me ask you, what happens if you take that sponge and you saturate it in water, and then you go and you stick it in a dark corner somewhere? thing rots. It festers. It stinks. It's good for nothing. It ruins the water. We're like that sponge. We're, we're meant to, to take and expend. And, we, and when we do, we are able to accumulate more and more and more and more. If we just try to accumulate and just save up that water that we have, we can't end up taking on more water and we just rot. We're, we're meant to put it out there. So if we don't listen to that imperative in the message of God's word, we prove that we're not really listening at all. It's like that seed, you know. If you take that seed and you put it in your pocket, the thing is going to rot. You're not going to be eat it, able to eat it. And even if you did eat it, it wouldn't be good for much, right? But if you sow it, it reproduces, right? It grows more and more and more. Truth always calls for a response, it always calls and requires that we do something with it, not just accumulate it for ourselves. We, we can't just simply affirm it intellectually and think that it, ha- it, it need not really have any bearing on our lives. It's meant to be used. I mean, even the whole point of going to school is so that you can learn to turn around and use the things that you've learned. 
The word will always have an effect in the hearts of its hearers. We talked about this last week. Either it's going to change you or it's going to judge you. Do you realize that? The more you hear the gospel and you do nothing with it, the more it condemns you. But as you hear and are changed by it and then reflect the word and you share the word and you speak the word, the gospel becomes more and more precious. And it's just an amazing thing. And you learn more and more and more about it and you give more and more and more. This is the thing, guys. God's giving to you is never going to be finite. Chloe, there's never an end to what God is willing to give you. Do you understand that? You can't outgive God. So you don't have to worry about, I only have this much knowledge, and if I don't, if I don't take more for myself and hoard it up, then I won't learn anymore. No, give it out! And God will give more. I mean, that's the way God works. You can't outgive Him. That's the whole point. That's why we have the Word, so that we can be a means of advancing the Word, so that we can share the Word, so that we can be changed by the Word. And it all happens as it goes through us, not to us. <clears throat> In the parable of the sower, we saw that when the Word fell on the path, or the rocky ground, or the thorns, i.e. the bad soil, It resulted in that condemnation because it didn't bear fruit like it's intended to. The word is meant to bear fruit. And again, Jesus is exhorting us to be careful with what we hear. He says, uh, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Right? With the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you. That's terms of, of judging, of weighing, of scales. If you are faithful with the word that you've been given, more will be added. If you fail to sow that measure, you will be judged by it. God will give you back a return on what you sow. Just as Paul says in Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from flesh reap corruption, from the one who sows to the Spirit will reap, uh, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And we can sow in the flesh if we accumulate this word for ourselves and do nothing with it. We can. Those who sow sparingly reap sparingly, but those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully. Jesus promises twice in these two verses that for those who are faithful, more will be added, more will be given. The promise is of abundance, of divine blessing. The more you sow truth, the more you reap understanding. The more you reap truth, the more you reap grace, the more you reap joy and peace and hope and satisfaction and fulfillment and divine blessing and more life and eternal reward. You can't outgive God. Every good thing in this life that you could lose pales in comparison to the blessing of eternity. Jesus promises in John chapter 10 that he came to give life and to give it abundantly. This is an absolute guaranteed promise that for the one who has, more will be given. If you truly have the word in such a way that it's changing your life and you're sharing it with others, more will be added. It will be an abundance. Do you believe that? 
Do you really believe that? But Jesus also says, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Or in Luke's account of this passage, from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Even what he thinks he has will be taken away. See, we don't own it at all. We don't really have it. We can think that we have it. This is not a warning that people can really have the truth, that the word can really be sown in their hearts and then they fall away. Instead, this is a warning to those who deceive themselves into thinking that they really have God's word sown in their hearts when in reality they're not bearing fruit, they're not growing, they're not changing, they're not being faithful to God's word. And our churches are filled with these kind of people. They are everywhere. It is easy to do this. We can get just enough of the gospel time and time again that we actually inoculate ourselves to it. We just assume that we have it. We take it for granted. Because we're intuitive people. This warning to those who would say, as it said, as Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 7, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Whereas Paul says in Titus chapter 1 verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. Now, neither Jesus or Paul are suggesting that our works save us, only that our works provide genuine validity to the truth that the the Word of God is bearing fruit in our lives, that we are indeed the good soil. Our works just give, give expression to the reality of our hearts. That's what's meant to, to happen. So we are to pay attention. Jesus says that that, hey, if you think you have the Word... Just know that I discern the thoughts and intents of the heart perfectly. You're not going to deceive me, right? So you need to be careful with what you do with it. I know whether or not the word has been sown in your heart. And if it's not, the word is going to be taken away. So listen carefully. Pay attention. Take the word seriously. Either it will change you, resulting in this tremendous blessing, or it will condemn you. And one other thing about this thought of Jesus taking away the word. This is not necessarily, well, it is, but it's also something more than just eternal judgment. Here's the thing. If you are around the gospel, are you around the word of God over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, and you do nothing with it, you become dull towards it. Even there, the effect of the word is being taken away from your life. Even in this life, right here, right now, you can experience this very thing that Jesus is talking about. We are to bear fruit. The Word comes in, we act upon it, and we're changed by it. The Word comes in, and it hits hard ground, it hits bad soil, grows up among the thorns, then it's of no fruit, it's no effect, of no real value. And Christ says here, that there is no clear indication of whether or not you have truly received the word than when you sow it, than when you, like that lamp, lift it up so that it will shine. 
The reality is proclamation of the gospel is the clearest indication that you have the gospel. That you love the gospel. That you know the gospel. That the gospel is bearing fruit in your lives. And what I'm talking about here is not proclamation like begrudging, self-willed, you know, fearful proclamation like, gosh, I really, I'm afraid to share my faith. I don't know how. I don't really want to, but I know I need to so that I can prove that I'm bearing good fruit, that I'm the good soil. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that the reality of the gospel comes to bear on your life with with such weight that you're just like, you're amazed, you're awestruck, and out of the overflow of your heart, you can't help but speak. Right? Good soil that's bearing fruit will speak. I mean, you're delighted to. This is not a burden. This is not something I'm afraid of. This is, I recognize that I have and need the Savior. That He is precious to me. That I cannot, I'm not going to lose what I give out. That God is going to supply it more and more and more so I can just give it freely. And God is going to bless me more than I could ever imagine. And when we recognize that, it's not hard. It's not a burden. It's not something to cause fear. It's not something that I have to drum up the will to do it. Something I do out of joy that I'm like Paul when I say, woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. So listen carefully to the word. Pray that God would help you to fall in love with the gospel. And guys, let's face it. You and I, every one of us, we can grow dull to the gospel. I woke up this morning not wanting to preach this message today because I knew my heart is cold to the gospel. Pray that God would give you an understanding of his word. Pray that out of the overflow of your heart, this truth of the gospel in your life would bear fruit for God. And as the light illumines your heart and mind, you will begin to shine. So we pray for illumination for the purpose of proclamation. And we sing that silly, corny children's song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray for our hearts right now. That we would not be inattentive or dull towards or dare we even say hate the gospel. God, I pray that we would not be afraid. I pray that we would not be distracted by the thorns and weeds of this world that would choke out the Word, but that it would seep and penetrate and grow deep into our hearts so that we would bear fruit for You. God, I pray that the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ would be precious to us. God, I pray that we would see you as you are. Not that we can see you fully, comprehend you fully, but that we would stand in utter amazement of who you are and who we are in light of you. 
And only in doing that, only in recognizing who you are and how desperately we need you, how, how we have willfully placed ourselves under your wrath, is the, is the blood and pain and humiliation of the cross seen as the most glorious thing that could ever be. God, we thank you that even while we were sinners, even while we were um, seeking after the things of this world, Christ died for the ungodly so that those who, who you have given eyes to see and ears to hear might respond by repenting and believing and by your grace growing. God, I pray that you would make us a church that is, is bearing fruit for you. That out of the overflow of our hearts would come tremendous fruit, tremendous blessing, tremendous uh, growth. And we don't pray that, though we do pray that for ourselves, we pray that ultimately for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.